If you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. As you know, we're continuing our sequential verse-by-verse study of John chapter 14. And after several messages regarding verses 1 to 14 of John chapter 14, we move along now to verses 15 to 21 under the title, Trinitarian Love. Trinitarian love. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say in the midst of an attempt to comfort his disciples about his imminent departure. He says this in John 14, 15 through 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This has been one of the most joyous study weeks of my life. Because in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21, I see here this Trinitarian love that is astounding to me. And it's not just the love that the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have for each other, and that is evident here. But it is particularly how those in the Godhead love each other and out of the overflow of that love, how they love us. And it's amazing how they manifest that love to us through the words of Jesus here. And so I want to give you, because this is a message called Trinitarian Love, a three-point outline. You, you, You get that, right? Three points. All right, you're with me. Here it is. The power of Christ. The power of Christ. The presence of the Holy Spirit. And the love of the Father. Now, I know that's not in line, right, with number one, Father, number two, Son, number three, Holy Spirit. But that's okay, because Scripture uses often an out-of-order explanation for talking about the work of, of the three persons of the one God on our behalf, in our salvation. And what Jesus says here, as he is speaking to his disciples, and he's going away, he's going to depart, he's going to the cross, then he's going to be raised again on the third day, and we're going to see that as we get into John chapter 18, verse 1 and following. And then he's going to be ascended to his father, 
And then he's going to come again. And he's already told them in the first part of John 14 that he's preparing a place for them. And that includes, of course, a reference to his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his soon coming return. And when he says he's going to come back, he says, this will be totally and completely prepared. And as I come back, then I'll receive you unto myself. And there we'll live in a kingdom, a kingdom for a thousand years. And you will be ruling and reigning as the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we will go into the forever future, something we call eternity. And you and I, with the Spirit and the Father, will love one another forever and will do it perfectly. And all of that is bound up in some of these words here. And the first thing that Jesus wants them to know in this new section, even though he's told them a lot, and it's taken us over six messages to figure out all of that in verses 1 to 14, but now we come to a promise of epic proportions. And here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Stop there. Now this theme, the theme of love, permeates chapters 13, even all the way through chapter 17. In fact, there's more references to the concept, the word love, and its implications in these chapters more than the rest of John's gospel combined. So there's a lot about love here. And the love that Jesus is talking about here when he says, if you love me, you will keep me, you will keep my commandments is is totally profound. Because what he's talking about, and the reason why I mention this as the power of Christ, is that if you know Christ, the very power of his personal presence, admittedly for us, through the Holy Spirit, for them, the very person of Christ in their very presence, quite literally. If you and I know Christ and the power of his personal presence, it revolutionizes who you are. It changes you. Just think back to your life before Christ. Now, some of you, you might have been a very young child. For those of you, you might have been an adult of some age And when the Lord came into your life, the Lord Jesus Christ, and transformed you, you and I saw for the first time His personal presence in power. The power to change. And I would say even very specifically, the power to love. And you know who we love first? Christ Himself. This is is not a new command. This is not something that we haven't heard before. Uh, Look, for instance, in, um, in John 13. Look at John 13. Look at, say for instance, verse 33. He says essentially something similar here when he says, yet in a little while of John 14, verse 19, he says in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. So it's the same kind of theme. He says, you will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I will also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But of course, he makes a difference there. You will see me, 
you will follow me afterwards. He says that in verse 36. He doesn't say that to the Jews, but he says that to these believing disciples and to all of the rest of the believers to whom he's been ministering, and of course to us as well. You will see me afterwards. We'll see him in a second coming, of course. But then he says in verse 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. You say, well, that's a commandment that says you should love one another. It doesn't say you should love Christ. But notice what he says. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. You see the power of Christ's love to you, how he changed you, how he transformed you, how he loves you still, how he is changing you from the inside out. And you see that kind of love and it's so transformative and it's so wonderful and it's so powerful that it leaks all over you and you therefore in return want to love others like Christ loves you. Just as I have loved you. And that's what's new about this new commandment. The idea of love, love your neighbor as yourself, that goes all the way back to Leviticus 18. But what he's saying now is, you ought to love people as I love you. And what does he say? He says in John 13, in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, listen to this, he loved them to the end. He loved them fully. He loved them completely. And he loved him with a cross. He loved them through his death. His burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his preparation for a home, a dwelling, It's a massive mansion that has many rooms to accommodate every single person who ever believes. And there we will be be with the Lord forever and ever. And we will be enraptured by his perfect love. And we ourselves with no tears, no sorrow, no sin, will love him as we have been loved. And he says says to his disciples, look men, I'm going away. I'm going to depart. You're not going to see me for a while. And I want to reiterate to you that you should still love me and you should still obey my commandments. And he repeats this idea. So this must be a part of the comfort that he's trying to give them, even though it's by way of command. Look at chapter 14, verse 21. I read it earlier. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them... He it is who loves me. If you're, if you're personally transformed by the power of Christ and you see what he's done for you, you love him and he doesn't stop there. You love me and you love me tangibly by doing what I say, by following my commandments. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, that is Judas, not Iscariot, Uh, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And he answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There it is again. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him, our abode with him. But he says, whoever does not love me, it's because they don't keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So it's it's a very easy set of logical principles. If you love Jesus Christ because of his power, the power 
with which he loves you, you will be drawn to that power. And the object of your love is the person of Christ himself, and you will want to obey the one you love. It's as simple as that, right? You want to obey the one you love. Now, we're not talking about loving him perfectly. It's not the perfection of that love because we're fraught with sin. It's the very direction of it. It's that you love him more and more each day. You're striving to love him because you're drawn to his power. And he keeps saying this. Look at John chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You'll stay in my love. You'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and stay in His love. Look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Command you. Another way of saying, if you keep my commandments... You're going to stay in my love. If you love me, I will love you. If you're my friends, you'll do what I command you, and you will love me, and you will love others. And John's not done. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Same author, John the Apostle, and he reiterates this so very clearly. 1 John chapter 3, verse 21. Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Do you know that you can have confidence before God and your heart will not condemn you if in receiving Jesus Christ you keep His commandments and do what pleases Him? And then he says in verse 23, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another another just as he commanded us whoever keeps this these commandments keeps his commandments abides in him in him remains in him and he in them and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us yes and amen look at chapter 4 verse 20 if anyone says now this is a declaration from somebody if anyone says i love god and, and you've, you've met them, you've talked with them, and sometimes when you ask them about their spiritual life, someone will say something just like this, oh, I love God. I love God. But if they hate their brother, the Bible says, here in verse 20 of 1 John 4, if they hate their brother, they're what? A liar. You see how inextricably linked these concepts are? I love God, but I hate my brother. To which you and I would say, well, then you're a liar. Now, that may not be the most pleasant evangelistic opportunity you may have, but this is what the Bible says. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, uh, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You love others because you see the power of Christ in your brother your sister. You see the power of Christ in them. You see that they have been drawing on Christ as the object of their love, and so they're endeavoring to love you, and you in turn want to go right around the loop and love them. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome and you know this harkens back all the way to deuteronomy 
You look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, for instance, and chapter 6, and chapter 7, and chapter 10, and chapter 11, and you'll reread this reiteration of the law about love, about love, about love, about love. And it's in the context in those passages about obedience. Obedience. Someone is askewed spiritually if they say, well, I love Christ, but I'm not willing to do what he says. That's not love. That's actually pride. That's actually a person who is committed to loving themselves, not Christ. You know, you probably have had this experience, especially if you're married, and especially if you're a male. I remember when I met my wife, and I knew a little bit about her. She was going to Biola University as an undergrad, and I was going to Talbot Seminary as a grad student, and I remember seeing her on campus, and I thought, I'd like to date her. And when I got to know her, and through the process of our whopping, long, enduring five months of dating until we got married. And people ask me today, you know, if you had to do anything differently, uh, what would you have done? I said, I would have married her sooner. Five months was way too long. And I remember conscious thoughts, and you may have them as well, men, where you are so electrified by this relationship. They complete you. They fulfill you. They stand with you. They are your helper. And what you want to do is because they have been the object of your marital love, you want to please them. You want to do what they ask. You want to come alongside them. I've even seen guys do some pretty ridiculous, crazy things just for the affection of the love of that girl that they're interested in. They want to impress them. They want to do anything they can so that that girl believes in the vying of that love and they receive that love and they accept that love and they bask in that love. And how much more in a superior way, infinitely so, do you and I want to vie for the affection of Christ? And we already have it. If you're a true believer, you already have Christ's love. He already loves you supremely. He, he couldn't love you any more than saying about you, and he loved them to the end. Because it's not just about the disciples he's referring to there. Primarily it is, but it's this. He loved everybody through that cross because everybody who would ever believe is drawn to the very power of Christ. You say, well, I wasn't initially drawn that way. No, you weren't. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when you and I have the eyes of faith and it's revealed to us for the first time that the very power of Christ is drawing us to himself, it doesn't even compare, but it does have a faint comparison to that love of someone that you're vying for. You want that love. And when you receive that love, you want to please. You want to respond to. And this is the power of Christ. No wonder he could say in his perfections in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Of course, of course you want to obey him. Of course you love him. I mean, who is it, my friends, 
who can honestly say, I love Jesus Christ, but I won't follow him as Lord. Who says such a thing? In fact, in Luke's gospel in chapter 6, it's the parallel to Matthew 7 when it talks about the man who builds his house on the sand as over against the man who builds his house on the rock. And you know how Jesus speaks about that in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 6? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? You see, nobody can lay claim to being a Christian if you are not involved with and obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And why? Because of the power of Christ. He has loved you. He has saved you. He calls you with a holy calling. And because of that irresistible power, you want to obey. You say, what do I do when I don't want to obey? Pray that God would make you obedient. I I pray that prayer. Lord, I don't want to obey you in this. But here's my second prayer. Here's the second sentence of a prayer like that. Make me obedient. You, You can pray that. It's okay. Lord, I'm not loving you as I ought. And this irresistible power, this this profundity of what you did on the cross, it ought to make me want to obey you at all times, but I don't. So make me love you. Make me obey you more than I'm doing. That's an okay prayer. That's a good prayer. That's a prayer of repentance. That's a prayer of contrition. That's a prayer of brokenness. I want to obey you. I want to remain in your love. I want to see the value of your love to me. And the greatest scene in the value of your mind and your life is when you are loving Jesus and obeying his commands. That's the power of Christ. I mean, look at what he's promised them already. He's promised them in the first 14 verses of this chapter, heaven. He's promised them that he is the the essence of the Father. He's co-equal. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He has called for them to believe in him in addition to the Father. He's promised that they'll do greater works than he will do. And he's promised them right here that they can receive answered prayers according to verse 14. And now in verse 15, you can also have my very presence with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. In fact, that's the second point in our outline, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Not just the power of Christ, not just being irresistibly drawn to Christ because you want to obey him, you want to follow his commandments, but he's given you every energy, every desire, every opportunity. He's given you the fuel to obey Jesus Christ, and it's in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. And, notice that connector, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, what? Helper. Now, we've got to stop right there, because that's an English translation, and that word is paraclete, right? Some of you know that. And sometimes, those who interpret the Bible for us, and those who even translate the Bible for us, say, 
All right, this could be helper, it could be counselor, it could be consoler, it could be advocate, it could be a number of other English words, but none of them actually quite gets to the essence of the totality of such a word, and that's why we have so many words in English in order to try to translate just the one word, the one concept, the paraclete. Parakletos, it's, it's the idea of one called alongside. And maybe the word helper just doesn't do it, right? And some translators and some exegetes and Bible commentators say, maybe the better concept here, and I think it is, is the Holy Spirit is the helping presence of God because he is God himself, the helping presence presence so he says and i will ask the father does jesus and he will give you another helping presence to be with you for three days is that what it says a weekend i mean a really good weekend i mean a phenomenal weekend a weekend like no weekends you've ever had before now what does he say with you for how long you mean forever just in this life Eternity? What a promise! What a promise! Did you know that those old covenant saints, they did not have the the personal presence of the Holy Spirit who would be in them to lead them and to guide them at all times and forever? They didn't have that. You know the Holy Spirit and the old covenant economy was usually given to judges or priests or prophets, or kings in such a way that when they were in their role as leader of their respective people, the Holy Spirit came on them and led them and prophesied through them, etc., etc. But that was the extent of how they had the Holy Spirit as requisite in their life. And when the new covenant age dawns and when the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2, one of the promises of the old covenant has given way to what we call the new covenant. And here's this promise, that the Holy Spirit will be with you, that is the church, and he'll be in you. What a promise. And Jesus says, and I'm going to ask the Father, and by the way, every prayer request Jesus ever prayed was what? answered Jesus never had a prayer request that wasn't answered even when he was in the garden and he says not my will but yours be done that was a prayer coming out of the crucible of knowing that at one point in space and in time and only that point both before and after he would be separated from the father because he was bearing the sin of the world no wonder he's struggling in the garden because he would be separated for a time on that cross where the Father turns his face away. But both before and after that, he would have, as it were, every prayer request, and even in that one, an answer from God. And here is a prayer request that's going to be answered by God, by God the Father. And here it is. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, helper to be with you forever, forever, even the spirit of truth, and we'll talk about that in a moment, whom the world cannot receive, 
They can't receive the spirit of truth because it, because it neither sees him nor knows him. The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God is not known to the world. They reject any overtures about the spiritual life, about the Holy Spirit, about God, about Christ, about the Bible. They cannot receive him. Notice that they cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. They don't perceive him. But I tell you, you know him and you're going to know him a lot better because implied at Pentecost, when he comes raining down upon you and enters your heart individually and collectively, you will know him like you've never known him before, and he will be with you forever. What astounding truth! Do you, do you conceive in your mind what your life would be like if you didn't have the Holy Spirit as resident within? Where would your conscience be? Your conscience would be pricked and undoubtedly you wouldn't even know it. The Holy Spirit convicts, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit pricks our conscience to let us know when right is right and when wrong is wrong. And the Holy Spirit guides us in our decision making. And we pray through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus to the Father. And the Holy Spirit gives us power, the power to pray. When you get up in the morning and you go to work and you don't want to go to work, the Holy Spirit gives you energy to go to work. It's not just you cranking it up on your own. If you're a Christian, you go to work, you do what you do. If you're that faithful housewife and you are endeavoring to be faithful to God wherever you are and in whatever situation you find yourself, the Holy Spirit is buoying you up in your spirit and a thousand different other things. This is, this is the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you for how long? Forever. Oh, I thank God for the answer to Jesus' prayer right here. What, what a prayer, and what a Savior to actually say to these beleaguered, doubting disciples, I'm going away. And that phrase alone would be leaving them in abject terror and fear, right? Where are you going? We even know that Judas, not Iscariot, says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? Lord, we're looking for a little help here. You keep saying you're going away. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? And even then, they were scattered, even after he taught them all of these things. They denied him. They ran away. But when the Holy Spirit comes in that Acts 2 glory and he comes down as those cloven tongues and he energizes the church, oh my word, it's it's a new kind of perception. It's a new kind of life. It's a new kind of reality. And you and I are walking, breathing believers who have Jesus and the Holy Spirit as resident within. Wow. When's the last time you thanked the Holy Spirit for his being with you and being in you? When's the last time you prayed to the Holy Spirit and you thanked him for the energy of his power? Where you ask him for more power? When you ask him to control you? You see, because it's not just the idea of how much I have of the Holy Spirit. You've got all of the Holy Spirit. It's how much does the Holy Spirit have of me? I want him to have all of me. 
because I have all of him. I want to lay my life down in service for others through and by and for his power. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. We probably don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. And it's probably because we hear so many people talking zany things about the Holy Spirit. And we go so far in the other direction and we don't talk enough and bask enough in the joy of knowing that the Holy Spirit is resident within us to give us the power to live the Christian life and obey Jesus' commands because we love Him. This is, this is what He's saying. Oh, and by the way, so excited. By the way, I love the fact that in verse 16, the Trinity is all right there. You see it? And I will ask the Father. There's the Father. And who's the I who's asking? Jesus. And I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, counselor, guide, advocate, encourager, one called alongside, helping presence. There's Jesus. There's the Father. There's the Holy Spirit. How come people can't see that? You have people that deny the truth of this Trinitarian obvious principle. It's right here. Some people say, well, you know, I mean, how could it be that if Jesus is God and he's on the cross and he's praying to the Father, because if he's God, then who's he praying to? Because they don't understand that it's the three persons in the one God. And they get tripped up by that. And yet here... By the lips of Jesus himself, I will ask the Father. I have a relationship with the Father. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. And he, the Father, will give you another helper who is in us. And we are in him to be with you forever. And he says right here, even the spirit of truth. By the way, this Trinitarian affirmation, you know, it's seen... So clearly, though implicitly, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, when it talks about the Great Commission. What does it say there in that baptismal formula? And we've got to be very specific about this. I now baptize you in the name, not plural, not in the names, but in the name of the Father and of the, the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Name singular. The name of the one God. Judaism, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, our Lord is God. Our Lord is what? One. The one name. The name of Yahweh, the Father, as eternally existing in three persons. Plural. So that's why it is in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And some people could come along there and say, okay, but if they're co-equal and if they're co-ruling and if they all possess divine attributes, then how can there be three persons in the one God? And here's my answer, because the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches it. And if it's beyond your fathom, then join the club. Join the club. doesn't mean it's to be rejected just because I don't understand it. It's to be received. It's to be affirmed because it's what the Bible teaches. And it's so true. The, the Bible writers aren't going to say, now let me tell you about the Trinity as though they're some theological professor, right? 
the Trinity is, and then they list all the verses and all the passages. It's not like that. It's in the running flow of the dialogue, of the narrative of Scripture itself. It's with Jesus teaching his disciples. And that's why it's true to say that the Trinity is not so much heard in the New Testament as overheard. It's Jesus saying, I'm going to ask someone. Who am I going to ask? The Father. And what will the Father do? He will send not simply Jesus, because he's already sent Jesus on his, mes- his mission, and that's why he's here, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, it says that both the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And that when Jesus does his work in Pentecost, at Pentecost, and after Pentecost, and he's still doing it, Jesus is doing it, and he's doing it by the agency of the Holy Spirit. See, you didn't know you were going to get a theology lesson today, did you? And the Trinitarian love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is all right here telling us that you're not an orphan. You're not alone. And notice what he says, the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. Do you know that that's mentioned in other places? The spirit of truth. It's mentioned a couple of other times. It's going to be mentioned in John 15 and John 16. And there are a lot of things you could say about the spirit of truth, but here's what I think it means in this context. The spirit who is truth. The spirit who encompasses truth. The truth of the Holy Spirit. The truth of what he's coming to do. The truth of what he has done. The truth of what he will do. And that's why the world doesn't see him. The world doesn't know him. The world doesn't want him. But he says, you know him Oh, this is precious. For he dwells with you and will be in you. He's going to dwell with the church. You say, well, when will this come? Remember, all of this is preparatory. He's explaining and comforting and teaching them so that when that day comes, they will see it in its full effulging glory. And when will they see it? On the day of Pentecost. That's when. In fact, he even gives them a little promise. Look at John chapter 20. He gives them another little promise in John chapter 20 that the Holy Spirit will come at Pentecost. And here's what he says in John chapter 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, this is Jesus to the disciples, he breathed on them, not in them, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. They would have the power. They would have the keys of the kingdom, right? They're the apostles. And notice, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the answer is, when was that? Did they receive it right then? I mean, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And you know what the answer is? This is also a foretaste, and it happened in Acts chapter 2. It happened in the very forming of the church. And it's why the church grew as it did, because the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them, because Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit, and they did. This is a promise in John 20, and Jesus never fails to fulfill his promises. They they are imbued with the Holy Spirit, and you can see the effects of it. In Acts chapter 2, I mean, you've got this Peter, this denying sort of defunct disciple who's, who's by the end of John's gospel in John 21, he's, he's going fishing. He, he's sort of chucking the whole thing because he's bewildered and he's confused. And he goes on to the shore and he sees from a distance this, this guy out there, this sort of murky figure, and they go and they find him. It's Jesus. And Jesus made 
breakfast for them. And by the way, you know how Jesus makes breakfast? Breakfast. It was there. It was the best breakfast they ever had. And when, when Jesus is saying to them, Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And even at that very moment, Peter doesn't get it all. It's because he needed the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he received that presence of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And what did he do immediately? He began preaching and he was preaching powerfully and thunderously and effectively like he'd never preached before. And when he preached, souls were added to the kingdom. Oh, for a preaching mantle like that. And it's available to those who have the Holy Spirit, just like Peter. And we do. We have the Holy Spirit. And by the way, look at John chapter 16. You say, yeah, well, you know, I want the Holy Spirit. But, you know, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm one of the twelve, and I sure would have liked for Jesus to stay around too. Notice what Jesus says in John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, these, these are interesting words, provocative words. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What? It's more advantageous for you that I leave? What's Jesus talking about? It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send Him to you. See, Jesus is always doing the sending He's also, I should say, doing the sending along with the Father of the Spirit. And when He comes, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see Me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And all of that will come through the very ministry of the powerful, convicting work of the Holy Spirit of God. Oh yes, I see the advantage now. Yes, I see the plan. I see the advantage. Thirdly and finally this morning, it's not just the power of Christ. It's not just the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's also the love of the Father. Look at verse 20. In that day. In what day? Well, some say, well, it's that day of the resurrection. Because remember, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he comes into Jerusalem and he stays there for how many days? 40 days, and then he's ascended to the Father. And so some commentators say, in that day, in that day when you'll see me again after my resurrection and before my ascension, I think that's not all that's going on here. In that day. Notice what he says just prior. You will see me because I live, you will also live. That certainly includes the resurrection, but notice this. In that day, whatever day that is, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. When will that day be? When they receive the Holy Spirit. You see all the context about the Holy Spirit? You see the Holy Spirit is being referred to here in verse 16 and verse 17. 
and verse 18 and verse 19, yet a little while and the world will not see me, but you will, because I live, you will also live, because I'm resurrected, you will also one day be resurrected, and you'll also be vivified, you'll also be enlivened, and when will that day be? In that day you will know that I'm in the Father, and you and me, and I and you, and that's the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, and he resides in you, and he teaches you these things. That's the Holy Spirit's role. He's the teacher. 1 John chapter 2. You don't have any need for anybody to teach you, but as the Spirit, the Spirit of God teaches you, He'll he'll give you this anointing. What is this anointing? It's not weird. It's not some crazy idea. I have the anointing. Do you have the anointing? If I have the Holy Spirit, my friends, I have the anointing. And every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And the book of Romans Chapter 8 says that if you are not obedient to Jesus Christ and if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are what? None of His. None of Christ's. It's a package deal, my friends. You have Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. And that's what He's telling them. I'm going away. I'm going away. Yet in a little while, you'll see me and you'll only see, see me for a while. But when I go to the Father, you'll see me in the personal presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And you'll see it in that day when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. Isn't that what Acts 1.8 says? Isn't that what it said to the disciples? In that day, you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to see it, you're going to know it, and you're going to understand this Trinitarian love, and you're going to understand the implications of that love because you'll know that I, Jesus, am in my Father, and you, believers, disciples, and all of us, really, you're in me, and I, Jesus, in you, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Wow. And what about the love of the Father? Where is that? Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be what? Say it with me. Loved by my Father. Oh, my dear friends. Is there no greater thing than to be drawn to the power of the risen Christ to love him and keep his commandments and to be filled with the personal presence of the Holy Spirit and on top of that, to be loved by the Father? This is, this is our birthday today. Every day is a birthday. Because we have been born again by the living and abiding seed of the Word of God. And what God gives us is the very power of Christ. He gives us the presence of the Holy Spirit. And He gives us the Father's love. Who does not want His Father's love? Who does not want it? I never had a father. Divorced when I was the age of four, and I never grew up having a father, and I never knew what a father was like. I never knew what a father could be to you. I never had a father who came to my games. I never had a father to love me, to hug me, to buy me good gifts. I never had any of that. And you know what? It was the father's plan because my father is and always has been from the day of my conversion, my heavenly Father. And you know what? I was not jilted at all because it was his plan. The Psalms say, when my father and mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me up. He took me up. And now I bask in my father's 
love. And that's not to to diminish anybody who had a father and had that human love, but I did not possess it. And now that I see that it was the father's plan, I not only accept it, I embrace it. Because I'm a living, breathing example of one who even though he did not have any kind of human father, I am not bereft of my father's love. The love of the father. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me, Jesus said, will be loved by my Father. And I will love him, Jesus, I will love him, he says, and manifest myself to him. And how will he manifest himself to you? Remember the context, in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's who he'll manifest. The the love of Christ, the power of Christ, the drawing toward the obeying of his commandments through the personal presence of the Holy Spirit so that the Father will love you and show you Christ and how will Christ manifest himself to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you see this this relationship of personal indwelling and what theologians call co-inherence? It's the idea that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and the Father and the Son love the Spirit and the Spirit love the Father and the Son and by the way, they all love us. How can you be more blessed than such a relationship? How can you be more wondered and more glorious in your pursuit of this Trinitarian love. I tell you, you cannot. But when you do, your life's transformed. My, my dear brothers and sisters, meditate on these truths. Read them over and over and over again. Read John 13 to John 17. Read it as though your life depended on it. And when you meditate on these truths and ask questions of the text, guess what? The Holy Spirit will illumine your minds to worship and praise our great God. Three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, Son. Oh, Spirit. We love you. Three in one. And we thank you for the power of Christ, the presence of the Spirit, and the love of the Father. And we ask that you would cause us all this day and the next day and the day after that if we are given them to think of, pray about, meditate upon this Trinitarian love and how it affects our love, both for the Trinity and for other fellow Christians around us and even the love for the world to see it come to know this great God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.